we've been um, in a series since this Sunday. We're calling it the Identity Series, so we're learning more about who we are in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to continue from where we started on Sunday with Royal Identity Part 2. Royal Identity Part 2. Um, so I need you to grab your Bibles tonight, grab your notepads or whatever you use to take notes because we're going to learn and we're going to grow and we're going to delve deeper into the scripture. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would speak tonight. I thank you for each and every person here under the sound of my voice, both in the building and virtually. Father, I pray that you would continue to do a work in our hearts. Help us to understand who we truly are. We are your children. When we are in Christ, our identity shifts. Help us to embrace this identity shift as we get more knowledge. Let it inform and impact the way we live. Father, I pray that this word would not go through one ear and out the other, but it would go into our ears and it would settle in our hearts and manifest in our actions. I pray for those who are here who are far away from God. I pray that this word would be so precise that it's almost as if I was sitting in and listening uh, and watching what's going on in their life because the Holy Spirit is just that powerful to take a word that is spoken to hundreds of people and translate it for one. Let the one, dear God, who's lost, hear this word and be restored. Let those who are discouraged be encouraged. Let those who know who they are, but they are being uh, dominated by the trials of life, let this word stir up with them an enthusiasm and an excitement that you are still on the throne. And Father, we pray that we would grow together for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So tonight we're continuing our series on royal identity. And on Sunday we talked about the significance of identity. Identity is an idea that is talked about a lot in our culture. Everybody has this sense of um, identity. We identify ourselves with a variety of things. On Sunday, we talked about how the moment a child is born, um, that child's identity is being shaped from the moment they get a birth certificate. Um, their identity is shaped by who their parents are, where they live, where they grow up, the names that they are given. And then we establish that at a certain point, a child begins to develop their own sense of self-identity. And we identified that self-identity is oftentimes defined by what other people think and what other people say. Because we as people, we have this natural desire to understand who we are. And many of us have asked ourselves the question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? This is an existential question that people deal with. Who am I? And if you're not careful, you allow the world to define you as something that Scripture says you're not. If you're not careful, you allow people to define you. The problem with people defining who you are is that we live in a broken world with broken people who do broken things, and our personal sense of identity can be broken as a result, which is why we as believers, we as people who are pursuing Christ and learning more about who we are according to Scripture, we search the scriptures to get an understanding of who we are. We search the word of God. As a Christian believer, we believe in the power of the scriptures. We believe that the Bible is a living text. It is not archaic. It's not old. It's not outdated. In fact, this is a living scripture, and God speaks through this word, and this word comes alive, and it makes us Alive. So here's where we landed on Sunday, according to the word of the Lord. We focus on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And my whole point on Sunday is that we are royalty according to the scripture. The scripture describes us as a royal priesthood. We dealt with that notion of being a royal priesthood. We're not just church folk. We're not just pew members, but we are a royal priesthood. Um, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this mysterious figure in the Old Testament who was both king and priest. Jesus is at the order of Melchizedek. He is both king and priest. Therefore, we are after the order of Jesus. Um, the king focuses on the kingdom. The priest focuses on the synagogue or the temple. And Jesus was able to flow between both. We are royalty because we have been purchased by Christ and God adopts us into the family. We become a part of the royal family, but we are also part of the priesthood and the role of the priest is to reconcile people back with God. So we are a royal priesthood. We have been chosen by God. We are part of his family. We have his DNA. And now our responsibility is to reconcile people back with God. So I want to deal with this concept of the royal priesthood. But in order for us to deal with this, I want us to go backwards in the scripture. Okay, I want us to, to start where we left off on Sunday, but we're going to use a technique where now we're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter to gain context to get a better understanding of what we learned on Sunday. Um, I mentioned on Sunday I was watching Star Wars. My sister asked me, when am I going to mention something about what I was watching? Because I tend to do that. When I watch a movie, I'm not just watching it for entertainment value. Uh, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. Um, but I'm constantly looking and understanding and seeing pictures and illustrations that can be useful to help people understand things. So here's the illustration for today. When they wrote Star Wars, they started with episode four, and you had to watch the prequel to get an understanding of the backstory, everything else that's happening. So on Sunday, we started at episode four. Now we're going to walk backwards so that you can get a better understanding of what happened in episode four by going to episode three. Does that make sense? All right. So here we are. Okay, we started with the royal priesthood and the chosen generation. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to go back to verse 1, and I want to walk through this scripture so we can get a better understanding. Let's start with verse 1. The scripture says, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, here's the context. Eventually, we're going to get to chapter one. But in chapter one, the apostle Peter is speaking to a group of believers to help them understand the beauty and the power of their salvation. So he writes this greeting in chapter one. And he goes to great lengths to talk about the, the wonderful concept of them being born again. He references things like the unblemished lamb whose blood was shed so that they could be free. So he spends great time and care helping the people who are reading this text to understand their salvation. So once we get to chapter 2, we see that word, therefore, connecting what he's about to say with what he's already said. Therefore, putting aside all malice, therefore, in view of this wonderful salvation that you have, in view of this new life that you have, in view of the precious cost of this new life that you have, in view of what your Savior and Redeemer has done for you, 
therefore put aside malice. Okay, so when we are making changes in our life, it's not just for us, but it's to recognize the beautiful gift that has been given to us. Something changes in your life when you stop sinning just because, but you stop sinning because you realize that someone purchased your freedom. When when you stop sinning because you love someone so much, that person being Jesus, and as you learn to love Jesus, you learn how to love yourself. As you learn to love Jesus, you learn how to love other people. And all of a sudden, your desire to please the one who saved you becomes greater than your desire to do the stuff that you used to do. So in the view of our salvation, when we truly, completely understand what God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ on the cross, it should translate into changed behavior. Therefore, in view of this wonderful salvation, put away malice. In view of your salvation, put away deceit. In view of your salvation, put away hypocrisy. In view of your salvation, put away envy, put away slander. Now, he uses this illustration in verse 2. He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now I want to deal with this picture illustration because uh, uh, Peter says we have to um, long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. Have you ever seen a newborn infant that's hungry? An infant, when an infant is, is hungry, the infant lets everybody know that he or she wants to eat. They cry out. They cry out. They cry out, and every respectable mother immediately wants to feed her child. Now, the picture that he's giving us is the picture of a mother giving that child milk. Have you ever seen a baby, after they've been crying out for something to eat, gobble down a bottle of milk? I mean, they just chug it down. I mean, they just, they, just, they just go for it. Like some of y'all, after the 21-day fast and consecration, when you finally got food, some of y'all, y'all get hangry. And when you finally get your food, when you finally get it, no one or nothing can stop you from, from partaking and enjoying your feast. And that's how a baby is, a newborn baby, when they finally get that milk. They, I mean, they just chug it down. And the Apostle Peter is saying, we as believers, we should be like newborn babies who are hungry for the pure milk of the word. We should consume God's word like an infant drinking their mother's milk. Now, in this context, it's not a statement about spiritual maturity. Some of you are familiar with another passage that says that we should no longer be on the milk of the word, but we should go to the meat of the word. And this picture illustration, that's not the point. Uh, The point is two things. One, like a baby, we should crave the word. I mean, like a baby that's hungry, we should crave the word. We should have such a desire for the word of God, like an infant that hasn't been fed. Once we get our hands on that word, we should go after it. But the second thing that this passage is implicating is implicating the nourishment that comes from the pure milk of the word. Notice that word pure. It means unadulterated. When something is pure, it's not mixed with impurities. 
It is pure. There are no preservatives in the mother's milk. And the scripture says that we should long, we should crave. That word long means to strongly and persistently desire something. So like a newborn babe, we should long, we should persist, we should hunger for the pure, unadulterated word of God. If you want to mature, you want the word of God straight, no chaser. You want it without preservatives, without additional sweeteners, because the word of God in its purest form has everything you need. Let me let me give you an example. So so whenever I prepare a message, I, I try to research and understand what I'm talking about. So I spent some time to understand how powerful the milk of a mother is. Now, anyone who's had a child, not me, because I've never had a child I participated in the creation of a couple of them. But what I heard is that breast milk is the best milk when it comes to a child. And, and it aids in so many different ways for the child's formation and, and, and their mental strength and their physical strength. But, but here's why. Because pure breast milk is rich in nutrients and antibodies. Did you know that pure breast milk has just the right amount of sugar, water, and protein necessary for a baby to grow. I mean, it's just sweet enough, but it's just strong enough for a baby to digest and get everything they need from the mother's milk. You don't have to give them steak at that age. No, some of y'all want to force a chicken wing into their hands, but, but for a period of their lives, all they need is the mother's milk because it has every nutrient necessary for that baby to grow. It has the right amount of sweetness the right amount of nourishment for that baby to long for it, to desire it, for that milk to nourish that child. I've also learned that breast milk is a living substance because it's filled with good bacteria that helps with digestion. I also learned from my research that breast milk not only nourishes the child internally, but you can use the breast milk externally to deal with certain ailments of the child. For example, a mother's milk can unblock a baby's tear ducts and prevent infection. Breast milk can also treat newborn rash, ear infections, and sunburn. That's how powerful the milk of a mother is. First natural, then spiritual. God's word is powerful enough to nourish the child of God. It has just enough sugar and just enough protein to be desirable and filling at the same time. It can nourish you internally. It can deal with ailments externally. The application of the word of God can deal with your insides and your outsides. It's living like a two-edged sword. It is profitable for living. When we embrace the word of God like a newborn, when we crave it, when we desire it, when we pursue it, it does supernatural things for us in terms of building us up and helping us to become mature and God, and if you're going to grow in your spiritual identity, you've got to crave the word. You've got to crave the word of God. In this particular instance, we are talking about the scriptures. The scriptures. We must become students of the word of God. We must crave the desire to study, to understand what has been written. Because in this sacred text, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. In this sacred text, we have what we need to live a life according to the identity that God has purchased for us through Christ Jesus. All right? So like a newborn, you ought to crave the milk of the word. 
What is your tolerance right now for the word of God? I mean, it's a Tuesday night. There's a lot of places you could be, a lot of things you can be doing. Some people chose to stay home, Netflix and chill. Some people chose to do some other stuff. But, but, but I, I believe that you're here because you crave the word of God. You shouldn't be here because your friend is here. That's an added bonus. You shouldn't be here because you just, you just like being around people. That's an added bonus. What, what you desire is the word. You desire the word. I, I need the word of God. I crave it. I'm hungry. You eat more than once a day. I'm hungry. Some of you, this shouldn't be your first meal. You should have ate something earlier today, spiritually speaking. Some of us are spiritually anemic, spiritually starved because we're trying to survive on Sunday only. And God is saying, as you grow, as you mature, as you crave, the word of God is nourishing. You desire it. You seek after it because you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So like newborn babies, we should long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, in respect to salvation. Your salvation is the beginning of your journey, but you're still growing. Your salvation is the beginning of your walk with Christ, but it's not the end. And we should continue to grow in respect to our salvation. Now, look at this. Verse four says, and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, notice that Peter now switches. He's using word illustrations and pictures. He switches from the language of baby talk to building talk. He switches the illustration. Now he's talking about architecture and construction. He's saying um, that we come to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. I remember when we were under construction with this building, we would order materials and they would come in these huge tractor trailers and they literally had to take these materials. For example, within these walls, there are steel beams. It's called framing and they would have this huge pallet and they'd bring it into the building and they'd set it down. And then it was our responsibility to review the materials to make sure they weren't damaged. Anything that was damaged was rejected. We sent it back. It's kind of like when you go to the store and you're looking for fruit and you're inspecting the fruit and you're looking at it. And if it's got too many dents in it, if it's not ripe enough, you don't take that one. But you're looking for the best fruit. What you don't want, you reject it. So, so the Apostle Peter is saying, you know what? We were living stones. He's establishing this concept, but he's saying we were rejected by men. But we are choice and precious in the sight of God. In other words, when you are born again, you're rejected by men. Think about when you really started to live for Christ. Think about what you did before Christ. Think about where you spent your time before Christ. Think about where you developed your friends before Christ. It wasn't holy, was it? But everybody was down to do unholy things. You thought it was life. You thought it was family. And there was a sense of loyalty and all of that stuff. But when you came out of darkness into his marvelous light, you realized that you were living a false identity. So your true life began when you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You were surrendered to him in that moment. You said, Lord, change me, become my Lord. And all of a sudden you were made brand new. Now you got up from the altar. God placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. And some of you tried to go back to your friends. 
And all of a sudden, your friends looked at you differently. All of a sudden, you were killing their vibe. All of a sudden, you were no, you were no fun to be around. All of a sudden, they stopped calling you. Because you didn't want to go out on Friday night anymore. They, they, they stopped looking for you. When you stopped participating in certain behaviors, you used to buy the liquor. But now you don't drink liquor no more, they don't call you. That was your bonding activity. You would bond around the things of the world, but now you were born again. Now you begin to crave spiritual milk. Now you're trying to bond to your new parent in heaven because the most critical time for an infant are those first few months because they have to bond to the mother and they are imprinted by their mother and they create, they crave that time with, with, their, with their parents. And so now you're craving time with the Lord, not time with the world. And all of a sudden you're feeling rejected because nobody calls you anymore. You're feeling rejected because you try to go back and you stick out like a, a, thor, a sore thumb. Why? It's because your identity has changed. Any person that's in Christ is a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. We get rejected. And then we start trying to tell people about Jesus and we encounter people who don't believe the same thing we believe. Have you ever tried to sincerely share the good news of the gospel and somebody just try to cut you up, shut you down, make you feel like you stupid and you know you intelligent. Try to make you feel like uh, you just because they watched a YouTube video or saw some article that all of a sudden they, 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 they try to belittle you and make you feel like you don't know what you're talking about. They rejected you. You ever had somebody say, oh, that's sweet. That's so nice. They try to patronize you because of what you believe. You get rejected. And let me tell you something. You haven't lived the Christian faith until you've been rejected. And if you're not being rejected at some level, you might not be living this thing right. Because the founder of our faith was rejected. The founder of our faith didn't fit in. The founder of our faith had people betray him. The founder of our faith, who was the verified Messiah of the world, was rejected by the very people whom we came to save. Not everybody was filling Jesus. And so in this thing called Christianity, the scripture says that we become living stones and we were rejected. The world rejected us, but God saw us as precious. So while we were overlooked, God looks at us and says, I love you. I want you. I desire you. That's why I've called you. Now we are this living stone which has been rejected by men, verse 4, but it's choice and precious in the sight of God. But look at verse 5. It continues and says, you also as living stones are built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We've seen that word priesthood again. God is building a structure. He, he, he's building something. And we are stones for the building. This building is a brick building. Surrounding the entire exterior of this building are cinder blocks. And brick by brick, the structure was built. And brick by brick, God is building a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is using language that would be familiar 
to the audience at that time. Why? Because if they were Jewish, they were familiar with the sacrificial system. They were familiar with the concept of a physical synagogue or temple and the need to build something that would last so that the priesthood could serve and so sacrifices could be offered up. Even if you were pagan in that time, there were other religions that offered all types of other sacrifices that had meeting places. But, but, but the writer is saying there is a spiritual house that's being built. He, he's not saying that there's a building with an A-frame that's being built. He's not saying that there is a, a, a huge synagogue that's being built. He's saying there is a spiritual house that's being built. Every person that confesses Christ is a living stone in this building that's being erected. This is for a holy priesthood, and there's a different type of sacrifice that's going to be offered up to the Lord. No longer do bulls and goats need to be offered up to redeem people, but now there is a spiritual sacrifice. That reminds me of one of my favorite scriptures, Romans 12, 1 through 2, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice had to die physically in order for blood to be shed. Jesus died once and for all physically so that blood could be shed, but he was resurrected, and now blood has to be shed. It's already been shed for us. Stay focused. The blood has already been shed for us. We don't have to shed physical blood, but because the blood of Jesus has been shed, we now have the opportunity to become sons and daughters of God. Thank God we don't have to go to the cross. Thank God Jesus already did it. See, what gets me when we start singing about the blood, what gets me about communion is that it should have been us, theologically speaking, on that cross. We should have died because of our sinfulness, but God. We were on death row, but God. We were lost in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy and love. That's, why, that's what gets me about the blood. Oh, precious is that flow. That makes me white as snow. All of my sins are covered. I was guilty. I was stained. Bleach couldn't get it out. Clorox couldn't get it out. But the blood of Jesus blots out my transgressions and my iniquity. And now I am made white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It reaches to the highest mountain, and it flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. It is the blood of Jesus that has redeemed us. There is no longer the need for physical sacrifices. But now there must be a spiritual sacrifice, and we must die to ourselves daily. That's why we are a living sacrifice. When my head is on the floor, I am a living sacrifice. When I'm kneeling at the altar, I am a living sacrifice. When my flesh is saying, go this direction, but my spirit is saying, no, don't go there. And I'm intentionally following my spirit instead of my desires. I am crucifying my flesh daily. I am a living sacrifice. There is no Christianity without sacrifice. If you're living Christianity, you haven't been rejected. Maybe you're not living it right. If you're, if you're calling yourself a Christian and there's no sacrifice, then maybe you're not living it right because according to the scriptures, there is a wrestle every single day. I don't care how holy you think you are. I don't care if you progress to your seventh tongue. 
I don't care if now you just speak with an authority and God is giving you revelation upon revelation. Every day we have to wrestle with the flesh. We have to crucify our flesh daily. And like Abraham, we have to have the strength and the courage to take Isaac and bring him to the altar. We have to have the type of mindset that says, if the Lord tells me to sacrifice this, I'm going to sacrifice it. But it is a living sacrifice. So you see in Romans 12, 1 through 2, living sacrifice. You see here in 1 Peter chapter 2, living stones. We are alive. Now look at this. We are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, for this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious, now underline this, cornerstone. This cornerstone is precious and chosen, and he who believes in him, Jesus, will not be disappointed. So when you're building a structure, particularly a brick structure, there is one stone that sets the tone for all the other stones. It's called the cornerstone. The cornerstone is critical for a variety of reasons. First off, the chief cornerstone, it's laid at the foundation of the building. It's at the outer corner of the two intersecting masonry walls. This cornerstone is critical to the shape of the building. It ensures that the building is square. It ensures that the building is level. Why is it important for the building to be square and the building to be level? If the building is not square, then that means you got a runaway wall. And it makes it difficult for any other wall to intersect in that wall because, for example, if you're trying to make a 90 degree angle, if the cornerstone is off and it's slanting at 95 degrees, then you're never going to make a square because 95 degrees will cause the wall to be way out there instead of being at the exact angle that it should be. So the cornerstone makes sure that the building is square. It also makes sure that the building is level because if the building is not level, if the foundation is is not level, we'll be leaning on the ever asking alarms for real. You know, lean and safe and secure. <laughs> you won't be safe and secure if you're in a building and is leaning. It's because the cornerstone was not set properly and something wasn't set in the foundation. The cornerstone makes sure that the building is square. And make sure that the building is level. And the scripture says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And the cornerstone sets the direction for every other stone after it. It is the rock upon which the weight of the entire structure rests. And you need to know that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. Without Jesus Christ, there's no Christianity. The cornerstone of the cornerstone is the crucifixion and the resurrection. Without the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, without his resurrection, then this is just a nice little pep rally, but all of this is for naught. If there is no resurrection, if there was no crucifixion, if Jesus was not a historical figure who claimed to be supernatural and actually did the stuff that he did, then all of this is a crock. So faith is believing The unbelievable. It is believing that Jesus Christ is indeed the chief cornerstone, that what he said was true, that he was a historical person who performed miracles, who was indeed the son of God and the entire faith rests on this reality. And when you believe in that crazy reality, you become a living stone fitted in with the cornerstone. The weight of the faith rests on this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone.
And guess what? Verse 7 says, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So for those who reject Jesus, they're rejecting the cornerstone. Jesus came and claimed to be the Messiah. All of the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus came, and yet they still rejected him. They rejected the cornerstone. Don't feel bad when you're rejected because Jesus was rejected. But know that because he is the cornerstone, when we believe we become a living stone in this spiritual house that he's building. Who was it that Jesus said, on this rock, I build my church? Peter. Peter should know a little something, something about stones and rocks. In fact, the name that Jesus gave him was Petros, Peter, rock. And Jesus said, on this rock, I build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. How does the church grow? With the confession of believers. Every time somebody confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the church grows. When Jesus was speaking to the disciples in that moment, he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say Elijah, some say this and some say that. And then Jesus was like, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and gave an accurate confession, said, you are the son of God. And at that moment, Jesus looked at Peter and said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. But, 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 but on your confession, I build this church. On this rock, I build my church. Every time somebody confesses Christ, the church grows. Every time somebody surrenders their life to Jesus, another living stone on this impressive spiritual house that's being built. As people are saved, another stone in the building. As people are converted, another stone in the building. And this building is just growing, growing, growing. This spiritual building. In the Old Testament, it was believed that in the holies of holiness, holies, the presence of God dwelled. When Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, the scripture indicates that the veil in the temple was ripped from top down, signifying how now we could come directly into the holies of holies. God places his Holy Spirit inside of the believer. Now the spirit rests in the temple. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who you received by God? You become the temple. We become the temple. The Holy Spirit resides within us, the spiritual house that God is building up. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Now, when a person is born again, they become another living stone in this living temple. And this is a precious value. But to those who reject him, those who are disobedient, those who don't believe, this is a stumbling block. Now, what do we do with this? We recognize that according to the scriptures, there are some who believe and some who don't believe. And what I believe Peter is trying to help us understand is that for us who believe, in spite of those who don't believe, in spite of those who are stumbling, in spite of those who, who just don't get it, we have to recognize who we are in the midst of a culture that's confused about who they are. So then he transitions from talking about the child and the nourishment of the milk to talking about the spiritual building to helping us understand our identity in verse nine, which is where we started on Sunday. But you are a chosen 
race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Others are stumbling. Others are rejecting the cornerstone and rejecting the living stones. But don't you forget who you are. People are forsaking Christianity, walking away from the faith. Every year there are new ideologies and new religions that pop up and new philosophies of life and new ideas and new practices and new age spirituality. But, but, but don't you forget that you are part of this spiritual structure that's been built since Jesus Christ died on the cross as the chief cornerstone. You are a precious cut stone to be a part of this building. Don't you forget your identity in the midst of a culture that's stumbling. In the midst of a culture that is disobedient. In the midst of a culture that doesn't believe. Don't you forget who you are. Don't you forget your identity. And let me tell you, friends, things are getting worse. Every year there's something new. Every year there's some new way to blaspheme the Lord. Every year there's some new wave that comes in. There's some new distraction. There's some new teaching that people follow after with itching ears. And it's all designed to draw people away from the true identity of what it means to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so in this hour, there's a word of caution. Don't you forget your identity. You need to know who you are. And the thing I love about building a building is that the reason why this structure has not fallen is because after you had the cornerstone, you had other stones that were included, but there was a glue that bound those stones together. That gave those stones staying power. And I'm here to remind you that when you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creature. Stay stuck to the structure. There are certain things of your Christianity that are foundational. The interior may change, but the structure doesn't. There are certain things that have been taught for the past 2,000 years, and there's a reason why they're in the foundation. Don't lose your sense of foundation. Because you've been specially crafted into something that was built to last. When we came into this building, there were walls that were temporary, walls made out of plywood. They weren't built to last, but we did not alter the external structure of the building. Listen, if we were to take out one of those posts, this entire building would fall on itself. Because there are certain pillars, certain posts, certain stones that are designed to hold the building up. And when it comes to the Christian faith, even though it might seem old fashioned, there are certain things they are designed and embedded in the foundation in order to keep us all safe and to keep the structure together. Yeah, we can change the color of the seats and we can change the type of sanctuary we have. But there's certain things in the foundation we don't mess with. Because we're built according to the cornerstone. And we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. Now, verse 10, for you were once not a people. You were once a people who didn't have an identity. But now you are a people who have an identity. And we're learning more about that identity. Right? You had not received mercy, but now you will, and you have received mercy. Now, here's what I want you to understand. We were rejected by God initially. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we were born condemned, rejected because of the sin of Adam, which passed on to all generations according to the book of Romans. But then there was a second Adam, Jesus Christ, and through him life spread through all who believe. Right. So we started out rejected by God, enemies of God, but we were called out of darkness to his marvelous light. Now we are accepted by God. Now that we are accepted by God, who are we rejected by? The world. You see that? At one point, we were rejected by God, accepted by the world. Now we're accepted by God and rejected by the world. Why is that important? Because you have to understand that even though you are a misfit, you're majesty. The world sees a motley crew of misfits. The, the, to the world, this is all foolishness. To the world, this is all foolish. Why you spend all that time at that church? Doing what? Why you spend all that time with those people? People in the body of Christ are weird. And I love it. Just strange. Y'all some strange people, but I love y'all. Spending time. I just, I just love the diversity in the body of Christ. Just some unique characters, weird People who love Jesus, I just love it. I love the diversity of the kingdom of God. Just weird. Speaking in tongues, just weird. I love it. Praying in the middle of the day, just weird. I love it. Laying hands on people, believing that they'll be healed. Just weird. I love it. You ought to embrace the weirdness that is the body of Christ, the weirdness that is Christianity. You ought to embrace the things that the world says. That don't make no sense, but you don't know like I know. Doctor giving you a diagnosis. Everybody else, they hang their head down. You're sitting there smiling because you're weird. I just told you you had cancer. What are you smiling for? Well, you don't know the God that I serve. You don't know what he's able to do. And this test is just going to turn into a testimony. I'm just crazy enough to believe that if I'm still here, I still have a purpose. Then it gets even weirder. If I die, it's all good because I'm going to heaven. When somebody in the world dies, everybody cries this morning. When believers die, we have a party. I'm already telling you, if I leave, you better, it better be popping up in here. It better be a celebration. Don't be sitting up here crying over my casket, talking all crazy. Service should be no longer than an hour and a half. You didn't say it when I was alive. Don't come and try to say it at the funeral. Have some good music. Go eat some good food. Live the rest of your life knowing that there is a hope and a resurrection. We're just weird, just weird, strange, peculiar. That's who we are. The world sees misfits, but you ought to see majesty because you're part of the royal family. Now, I'm almost done. Not done yet, but I'm almost there. I'm setting something up. We were rejected by the world, and now we're accepted by God. Now look at verse 11. After God tells us that we are a royal priesthood, chosen generation, look at verse 11. Beloved. Somebody say beloved. beloved. I love David Burton because he introduced that word into my lexicon. Beloved. Hey, beloved. <laughs> Brothers walking around calling people beloved. That's just wonderful. Ain't nothing weird going on. It's just the body of Christ. Beloved. The scripture says, beloved, we beloved. 
Who talks like that? Christians do. And apparently the apostle Peter, he says, beloved, I urge you. When you're urging somebody, you're pleading with them. I just, I need you to get this. I, I urge you as aliens. He's not talking about Star Wars or Predator. Some of y'all like aliens. Something out there. It's not what he's talking about. Because that word aliens, it translates into sojourners or foreigners. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to, uh-oh, look at that word. That's that A word. Abstain. Man, you want to cuss? In today's culture, say the word abstain. What do you mean abstaining? I'm free. I can do what I want to do. But the scripture is indicating that there are certain things that we should abstain from. Certain things we ought not do. Certain things we ought not say. Certain places we ought not go because we're, we're weird. Abstain means that everybody else might be doing it. But you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. Don't you do that. Royals do not do such things. Royals don't go such places. When you have regal blood, there's certain things that you, that you do not do. You do not stoop as low as to do what everybody else is doing because you're different. Right? Abstain. So, so this is what Peter says. He says, as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lust. Anybody got any fleshly lust? Don't sit here and lie. Thank you for the truth over there. Because we all have fleshly lust. Say it with me. I have fleshly. I don't know what yours are, but I know you got them. And you better not live in denial and act like you ain't got them. But the apostle says, abstain from fleshly Lust, look at this, which wage war against the soul. You haven't really been living in Christianity if you haven't been rejected. You really haven't been living in Christianity if you haven't felt weird and out of place. And you ain't really living in Christianity if you've never had some fleshly lust that wage war against your soul. See, because... When there's war, there's conflict. When there's no conflict, there's submission. But when there is conflict, we refuse to submit to our flesh because we're allowing the spirit to grow bold in us because we have been drinking the milk of the word and we want to grow up in the things of Christ and we're being nourished by God's mind, working through the scriptures. And now we wage war against the fleshly lusts that war in our soul it's a fight for identity it's a fight for identity which identity 
will win. The identity of your former self, the identity of your flesh, the identity of your fleshly desires, or will the identity of this royal priesthood that is emerging, this royal structure that God is building, which identity will win? That's why you need the milk of the word. That's why you need the nourishment and the proximity that comes from being connected to the breast of the father. Because when we are connected, we are close. We are in proximity. We are receiving directly from heaven. And God is saying, in this hour, you need to know who you are. Because when you know who you are, you can abstain from the fleshly lust. Because you don't fall for the okie doke. You don't fall prey to what Eve fell prey to. Where she was confused about her identity. And the serpent tried to convince her to be something that she was never, ever called to be. Because you know who you are. Now, I want you to see this. We're almost done. That word sojourner or foreigner means a person who comes from a foreign country and to a city or land to reside there with the natives temporarily. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're just coming to America. You remember that scene? And coming to America, where they got off the plane, they had all of that stuff behind them, and they were dressed in their regal garb, and they stuck out like a store thumb. It was because they weren't from there. They were from a different culture, a different time zone a different geographical location, a different lineage. You got to see this. You're just passing through. Do you realize that you'll spend infinitely, infinitely more time in eternity than you will on this earth? Have you ever taken time and it will mess your computer up? Just mess your computer up to think about time and space and matter and what exists beyond my birth date and my death date. I don't know everything, but I know I'm finite. I know that one day I'm going to die. One day, nudge your neighbor, say, you're going to die. But have you ever considered that you could multiply the time that you spend on this earth Times the time that you spend on this earth. Times the time that you spend on this earth. Times the time that you spend on this earth. Times the time that you spend on this earth. Exponentially and still never add up to equal eternity. That the infinite loop is infinite and it's infinite and it's infinite and it's infinite that there is something conceptually outside of time itself called eternity. And you will spend infinitely more time as we know it or can fathom it with your creator and eternity than you will on this earth. But here's the thing about eternity. It exists for the believer and it exists for the non-believer. There's an afterlife for the believer. There's an afterlife for the non-believer. And I believe it's C.S. Lewis who said that those who die without Christ and without God ultimately get what they desire. Because one definition of hell is eternal separation from the Father. They finally get what they want, a life without God. But we are now a people 
We have tasted the kindness of the Lord. In view of our salvation, therefore, we let go of some things because we are strangers in this land, passing through, temporary. See, everything changes when you realize that your time here on earth is temporary. And sometimes I think that's why God allows things to happen to us. Because it puts things in perspective. That's why I believe God allows these bodies to begin to degrade. Because it's just a reminder that you're not going to be here forever. That's why I think that there are times where God will so clearly show us our mortality. Just to remind us that this is temporary. And one thing I need you to understand is that you need to long for eternity. Life is good, but eternity is better. And when you get that in your heart, when you understand that you have a mission and an assignment to produce a righteous legacy in your children and your children's children, some of you may not have physical children, but you have influence. And there's something you should be reproducing because you're not going to be here forever. You're just passing through. You got to realize that as you're passing through, certain things you abstain from because you have to fulfill your assignment. Changes everything when you understand who you are. I told you I like to watch movies so I can see different concepts and the Holy Spirit begins to show picture illustrations. You know, the spy movies where someone's on an assignment, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to go and do X, Y, and Z. When you're on assignment, you have a goal in mind. But whenever there's opposition, they will do things to try to distract you from your assignment. They'll do things to try to distract you from accomplishing your goal. They'll put obstacles, they'll put traps in your way that are designed to hinder you from hearing the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But when you rely upon your training, when you remember that you have been called, when you remember that you have been sent, this building is an embassy. Do you know how embassies work? Embassies are established on foreign soil to represent a nation far away. Do you realize that an embassy is sovereign? That where there is an embassy and an ambassador that represents the government of the nation which they are from. The church is just an embassy where the ambassadors, where the Senate, where the Congress of God, where the ecclesia called out of private spaces into public places to deliberate and legislate on behalf of the kingdom of God. This is an embassy where we get our instructions so we can go out into a world which is not our home and represent the king and the kingdom because we are royalty. And when you understand that, it puts a lot of stuff in perspective. 
when you realize who you are, puts everything into perspective. So sometimes we're running around doing trifling stuff, just trifling. <laughs> just trifling, just all over the place. Because you don't know who you are. If you knew who you were, if you knew what your legacy was, if you knew who your father really was, then you would walk differently. <laughs>